Hello, everybody. Welcome to Say What? A Fresh Look at Old Saying, a podcast that explores familiar adages and expressions. Today, I am your host, Bello Donja, and I have a very, very, very special guest with me, <laughs> Dave Ellingson, an adventurer, an author, a speaker, and I might add, a grandpa. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bello, and thank you for um, all your help to make this podcast possible. You've been behind the scenes, now you're in front of the camera. Thanks for all the help you've given so far. Dave, it's my pleasure, and I enjoy every single moment um, doing this project. So, if you don't mind diving straight into these questions to try and explore some of your background and get to some of these lessons, I'd like to get right into it. Sounds good. Dave, will you tell us about your current lifestyle as grandpa? <laughs> well, well, it's interesting. As I said before we started recording, um, I was getting all set up for this conversation and I should have thought this more carefully because today is the day that grandson William and granddaughter Addie come to our house. And uh, that's always a joy, but it also adds a level of uh, activity and sound in the background. And then, of course, right before we began, I, I walked out into the living area and, and folks were uh, having lunch. And uh, one of my daughters, Leah, had also brought over grandson uh, Grayson and granddaughter Rory, and wouldn't you know, uh, a battle ensued between the two four-year-old boys over some toys, and the volume rose accordingly, and I thought, oh my goodness, that is life itself. But uh, being a grandpa and um, that part of the journey has been a delight, and my son Eric in California and his wife, Rebecca, have uh, just in the last uh, month or so announced a fifth grandson. <laughs> the adventure continues and it's a joy, it's a challenge, and it's a, a, a learning experience still. <laughs> oh, wonderful. It's amazing to hear that these children will be able to learn from you, enjoy your presence, uh, and be in your care for, you know, their childhood. I, for one, am a product of an elder uh, grandparent uh, who raised me. So I think there is uh, lots of value uh, in being in close relation with your grandparent. So I'm happy that your children get to experience that. Now, if you don't mind me asking, I know you have a history uh, with your family having migrated over and finding their way into the heart of America. And how does that lead to the Midwest? So my great-grandfather and grandmothers came uh, from Norway in the 1840s. And of course, they came through New York, up the Hudson River, across the Erie Canal, uh, crossed the Great Lakes and settled to farm and be carpenters and shipbuilders uh, in Wisconsin and uh, Iowa. 
later traveling to Southern California after I had finished my studies uh, and working there for a number of years and now uh, for many years have been in the Pacific Northwest, which, which is interesting because it is very similar to Norway. So my Viking spirit, my Norwegian spirit, um, is very happy to be near the mountains and the water here in Washington State. Well put, Dave. Thank you for that history. And I should say, I know you are a master gardener. And in the Norwegian spirit of speak, what got you interested and so involved in cultivating the earth and being one with our planet? Well, my uh, grandparents and great-grandparents actually were farmers. The one in particular that I know the most about was my grandfather, Oli. Um, there was a series, Oli O, Oli W, and they farmed uh, in Iowa in that rich soil. And um, my dad was one of 11 kids of Ole O. Ellingson near Decorah, Iowa. And my dad obviously didn't farm, but he loved to garden. He had picked up that love of growing things. And I, I don't, I have to admit, I, I didn't have that from birth. I, I was put in the garden and in the yard to weed. But the joy of gardening is is being a part of the, the natural process of the earth and the growth. And the best of all is after the weeding and after the cultivating, you get to eat this wonderful, wonderful food. And so I'm harvesting my, my tomatoes right now and my peppers and my lettuce. And even though fall is upon us, the berries are still being uh, eaten and the apples from my tree. So I take a great deal of pleasure in growing things, but even more in eating things. <laughs> you know, I've had my share of weeding assignments from my grandmother and from you on the rooftop of Trinity Lutheran College. I would like to dive into how did you go from the Midwest to Trinity? <coughs> wow, that... I, I like the a phrase, and I I like to think it's original, but I don't know that there's any original phrases left. I I would say to my students, God writes straight with crooked lines. So my journey has taken me on many different ups and downs and detours, and sometimes the detours have been the best. And so very briefly. Um, after college in Iowa at Luther College, where I was in English and classical um, studies, classical languages major, I went to Yale Divinity School to study theology and to, to determine what God had in store for me. And that led me, when I graduated, to Southern California, where I was a campus pastor. I worked at Long Beach State and Long Beach City College, working with students with faculty and staff um, loved my experience there lived right on the beach it was a great great time um, and then moved to the northwest uh, to actually farm my brother-in-law and sister and i bought some land in eastern washington and um, 
planted 13,000 apple and pear trees, I had this crazy and wonderful idea of being a, um, a rancher, farmer, orchardist. And for seven years of the hardest work of my life, we tried to develop a, a sustainable agricultural effort. And for a host of reasons I won't go into now, we failed. We failed. <laughs> it, it didn't work. And we learned a lot of lessons while trying to develop that orchard. Um, and uh, after that work, I worked for the church, coordinating youth programs because I've always enjoyed working with young people. And then that led me ultimately to Trinity Lutheran College where I taught uh, about working with young people and other subjects like spirituality and social justice and the environment. And of course, that's Bella where I got to know you and we got to work together and um, our friendship began. Wow. You know, such a journey. I'm very positive that you must have encountered lots of hardship. Uh, the, the farm failed. And as I mentioned, um, that had to begin again economically. We, we invested all of our money and time and it, um, it went down. And so, so starting again economically, a part of that whole difficult time was a marriage failed. So I was married um, and for a host of reasons, um, it didn't work. And I became a single parent. Um, and that was a challenge, obviously, because I was working and farming and trying to be a good dad. Um, and uh, I learned an enormous amount um, during that time about um, being with my son and supporting him and encouraging him and just being present. And so that, that time was a time of, of failure in some regards, but the success for me was um, learning how to be a, a dad. And uh, to this day, that's one of the great joys of life. And I think, you know, a lot of folks will look back over their lives and, and careers. And um, I think it, what, what ultimately I think measures the success of a life isn't the money you make or the achievements, uh, but the relationships you build. And so whether it's in your own family or with your students like you, Bello, or mentors along the way, the people that influenced you. I was thinking about this the other day because one of my mentors is um, is on his deathbed right now, a wonderful human being named George Johnson. George uh, has been my mentor and dear friend over the years and, and uh, an angel in the sense to me, one who, um, who taught me and guided me along the way, who was a pastor, a theologian, a writer. Um, he was kind of my godfather uh, in the area of social justice. And he's written many books, um, stood up in many settings to speak truth to power, um, helped me to see that, that the way one lives one's life, not just on 
Sunday morning in church, but each day of the week, his, his favorite passage was from Micah 6.8, and that passage is, Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Um, another one who has passed away um, and who taught me in a, a very different arena was my uh, college choir director, a man named Weston Noble. And if you're in choral music, that name is quite a legendary name. I sang in the Nordic Choir at Luther College. And uh, when I think of Weston and his directing and the music I was able to sing under him, what he gave me as a gift, George gave me a vision and a passion for social justice. What Weston gave me was a passion for and a, a joy experiencing through music beauty. And, and so for me, when I'm feeling low or when I'm feeling high, oftentimes I go to that well because through music, uh, my spirit um, is sustained, is lifted, is challenged. And so uh, another angel in my life was, was Weston Noble. A, a third person that comes to mind um, who was a mentor and a guide um, is, became very famous, but when I first knew him, he really wasn't. His name is Henry Nowen. And Henry was a professor of mine at Yale and, and went on to write many, many books. And the gift that Henry gave me in his writing, but also in the friendship that developed after uh, I left the school, was the gift of um, contemplation, of prayer, of meditation. I'm, I'm an activist. I'm a doer. I'm a talker. <laughs> And as you can tell. And Henry gave me the gift of sitting still, of listening, of being open, um, of learning by simply reflecting. So the activist hopefully has some balance uh, and uh, again, a well to draw upon for that activism. So I think of George Johnson, I think of uh, Weston Noble, I think of Henry now, and I've been blessed with some wonderful teachers and mentors and friends over the years. Wow. It's wonderful to hear that your mentors have mentors, which means, in a sense, generational knowledge, generational wisdom. Indeed. So thank you for touching base on that front. Now I'd like to ask you about your athlete career, because <laughs> I recall you were a long distance runner for quite a while. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, you know, the, the athletic part of me is, is um, again, a story of, of success and failure in many ways. <clears throat> Um, as an athlete in high school, when, you know, oftentimes one is measured by how good a jock or an athlete you are, I was rather small. Um, fortunately, I discovered in high school uh, wrestling. <laughs> and there are age or weight categories that allowed me to wrestle and to have some success 
in, in wrestling. And I learned the discipline of working hard and making weight and all of that. The other sport that I, that I got involved in in high school was golf. And it uh, doesn't make any difference what size you are. And I actually was a pretty good golfer, went to the state tournament and, um, and enjoyed being out of doors. That was the best part about golf. I love being outdoors and being out uh, on, a, on a golf course is a wonderful way to, uh, to enjoy the creation. When I headed off to um, <clears throat> college and seminary, I have to confess that I became rather sedentary. And um, <laughs> that's, you know, they talk about the, what, the freshman 20 or, you know, yes. <laughs> I, I probably gained 30 or 40 pounds. And by the time I got to graduate school and seminary, I was so out of shape. And I was inspired, I was ill, I was inspired by um, this little um, skinny guy who was running around town. This was the beginning of the jogging movement, if you will. And some people may remember, if they're a little older, the name Frank Shorter. And Frank was a Yale student who became famous because he won the Olympic marathon. First time an American had ever won that race. And I saw him walking and then running around town. And I thought, you know, I'm small. I'm not skinny. But if I get out there and, and, and exercise, so I began jogging. And a, a funny story, one of the early jogging experiences, I went out to jog and I couldn't go all that far, but I had gotten to the point where I could go maybe a mile or two. So I headed out one day and I got lost. <laughs> and I, I really literally couldn't figure out where I was. And this is New Haven, Connecticut in the summertime. It's hot and humid. I was sweating. <clears throat> and so I kind of wandered around jogging, trying to find my way back. And ultimately, after an hour at least, I found my way home. And I thought, wow, I wonder how far I went. And so I, I got in my car <laughs> <laughs> and retraced my steps, my running steps, not graceful steps, but steps nonetheless. And I found that I had gone five miles. And I thought, oh my goodness, maybe someday I can run a marathon like Frank Shorter. Long story short, a couple of years later when I was in Southern California and the jogging boom was developing, uh, a friend uh, who happened to jog as well and I trained for uh, and ran a marathon, 26 Point two miles. And of course, our goal was just to finish. That was our goal. And we finished arm in arm, hand in hand. Uh, we actually used it as a fundraiser for world hunger. So we every mile people could pledge and give money to help feed people that were hungry. So I've, I found out that the, the longer the race, the better I was. And I, and I think this is my Nordic, my Norwegian, my Viking roots, the if there is a tough part of me, which is probably also the stubborn part of me, is that I have endurance, right? And so I continued to run. I ran the Boston Marathon. I ran a number of marathons. My times kept going down. And then I heard about a race called the Western States 100 Miler. And I thought, ooh. 
how could you, could I run a hundred miles? <laughs> and I trained <clears throat> for months and eventually ran this race across the Sierra Nevada mountains. And the goal of this race was to run it in under 24 hours. And if you did, you'd win a gold belt buckle. <laughs> and I amazed myself and probably everybody else that I ran it in 17 hours, finished third, set a world record in my age group and ran an, uh, what's called an ultra distance race. That race has become very famous uh, in the meantime. One more quick story about my, my athletic days. Um, I, I then heard about, I was actually traveling and doing some postdoctoral research on fitness because my doctorate was in health and wholeness and fitness. And I heard about a race called the Ironman Triathlon. And it was a race in Hawaii with swimming, biking, and running. And the, the story behind this is really kind of fun. There were, there were three guys sitting in a bar, right? <laughs> and one was a runner, one was a swimmer, and one was a biker. And each of them said their particular race was the hardest. The marathoner said the Hawaii Marathon. The, um, the swimmer, there was a, a, a race through the surf that, that swimmers swam. And then there was a bicycle race around Hawaii. So the bartender said to them, you know, the only way we're going to know who's the toughest of you three is you put them all together. And that's how the triathlon was born. And I happened to be there the next year, saw it, wrote an article for a magazine, and I said, oh, my goodness, I've got to try this. So again, I trained, swam, biked, ran, and a year later uh, did the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. So, so if I have Olympic experiences and successes, those would be, those would be the highlights. But of course, there's always a downside. <laughs> I tend to do things, as you well know, not to excess, but I push the boundaries. So I ran a lot. I swam a lot. I, I wore out my knees. Oh, no. And so, I have two wonderful scars on my knees because both of my knees have been surgically replaced. And I have mechanical knees that get me around just fine, but my running days are over. And I, and I like to say now that I'm an expedition distance kayaker, I haven't worn out my shoulders yet. But <laughs> when I wear out my shoulders, put me in a kayak like a good Viking, push me off into the ocean in the sunset and shoot a flaming arrow into my kayak as my days of being an athlete end. So end of, end of adventure, but great fun along the way. That is the burial of a warrior. <laughs> <laughs> and for someone whose superpower might very well just be endurance, I think that is a well-deserved uh, burial request. Now, I know your first book was My Body, My Life. Mm -hmm. And I suspect some of the lessons written in this book have to do with your athletic years and also 
your lessons learned from that experience. Tell me a little bit about my body, my life. Well, that was really my research and my doctorate that I did at uh, Claremont in California. And I studied um, exercise, nutrition, stress management, the environment, all of the ways that one can maximize one's performance. And this is many years ago. So a lot of the things that I was writing about and researching and learning were <laughs> controversial, right? And, and many of those things have now been shown to be true in terms of um, exercise, nutrition, stress management, all of those holistic health kinds of things, right? It was uh, one of my reviewers on my book when it came out said, a bunch of hippie mumbo jumbo. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could find that reviewer now because most of the things that I and others were saying were important for good health and wholeness have now been demonstrated to be true. So that book um, was kind of my rediscovering my love of writing, but also it was an experiment in my own body, my own life. Uh, I wasn't like in the library, although I was in the library some. I was trying things. And so if I was if I was going to talk about nutrition, one of the things I was learning was that many of the great endurance athletes were vegetarians or or close to being vegetarians. Some of my heroes, you are from Africa, you know the great runners of Ethiopia and Kenya and Tanzania. Many of them, they may not be vegetarian, but they had very little meat in their diet. Right. And so, so I tried that almost 50 years now. I've been a vegetarian, and I'm, I'm feeling good. So that was the first book, and that really kind of launched, in many ways, a healthy lifestyle for me. Um, then, um, as, as time went on, I had other role models. And of course, this was the 60s, right? And it was a time of many ways social activism. And I went to a convention of our church in Miami Beach, Florida, where there were thousands of high school kids. And one of the speakers had a big influence on me. His name was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I have the pleasure to present to And I can still remember him talking about how it's not just what you say on Sunday morning that indicates what you see as valuable or what your faith is, but it's how you live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so as the civil rights movement developed and he gave leadership to it, um, I, I found that to be very, very important. And to this day, that's at the heart of of my life, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you will, I think is an extension of that and shows us how much work we still have to do um, in civil rights. Um, interestingly enough, the 60s had a number of movements. And so as I was 
in college, high school, college, um, the women's movement was was developing. And so I remember saying to one of my friends in the in the early 70s, I'm a feminist. And they went, what? How can you be a feminist? You're a guy. I said, because I support the rights of women, that they should be paid equally, they should be treated with justice and fairness and compassion. And and so the women's movement, um, the civil rights movement, and then uh, a third movement that developed really in many ways in the 60s was the environmental movement. Stuart Brand wrote a wonderful, or put together a wonderful uh, book called The Whole Earth Catalog. And I remember looking through that and beginning to say, you know, my decisions today have an impact, not just on my household, but on the larger global situation. Now, climate change had not really been spoken of, but I began to see that my actions affected everything and everyone else. And so whether it was conservation, or whether it was uh, trying to help with legislation around clean air or clean water um, or caring for wildlife. I mean, I, I began to feel like here are three or four things that are important. And, and I had mentors and friends and those movements began. I'm still involved in them and we still have work to do. So let justice roll down like waters, which is what the Bible says, for me is kind of a motto. Dave, I remember marching down to the waterfront, getting into kayaks and protesting alongside you uh, for an oil rig being installed out in the nearby waters. And my influence at that point was to learn the lessons of how such activism informs my choices in life. And I think you've done a good job learning from the likes of Martin Luther King and passing that knowledge down to me. I'd like to ask, what was the influence of activism in your teaching and in your ministry? Well, you probably remember uh, at the college, I, I taught the Old Testament prophets class. And, you know, here are these activists thousands of years ago who stood up to kings, who stood up to unjust rulers, and who, as they said, had a word from the Lord, right? Let justice roll down like waters. Do justice, love mercy, care for the widow, care for the orphan care for the sojourner, care for the alien, that the true test of one's faith, of one's life, of one's very identity, is how you treat the less fortunate. And of course, Jesus embodied that and, and lived that, and, and I think that infected me in a good kind of way. And to this day, I try to, in my life, but also in my teaching, and in my involvement in the community, be an activist. And, um, you know, whether I was teaching at the college or whether it's now with my, with my grandkids, um, I remember uh, a climate march a number of years ago. I, th I think you were a part of that climate march that we did downtown um, Seattle. And, but I remember years before that, 
uh, there were some climate marches and um, my kids were involved in those. And so, you know, the thing about, about protests, because there's a lot of protests going on these days, um, they, they are a way of saying, this is what I believe. I'm going to put my life on the line. I'm going to get my butt out of my chair. I'm going to be on the streets. I'm going to speak up. And then, and then we can make the changes in our world that need to take place. Um, like I said before, there's a lot of work to be done. And the, the other thing about, that I would say about working for justice is it's, it's, it's enjoyable. You know me, the, my 11th commandment is thou shalt have fun. Well, when I'm on the streets or when I'm with other people, whether it's protesting or uh, you know, helping somebody in some small way, that gives me joy. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died recently and is a, a hero in my life. And, and she would talk about her goal in life really was to build community and to help other people. I think there's no more noble calling. And she was a wonderful example of that. And I, I guess I would hope I am in my small way too. Oh, wonderful. Now, I know in the having fun aspect of working for just, justice, there is also the challenge of realizing one's own privilege. How has that been for you in terms of educating yourself um, and exercising um, the rights that you have to benefit um, others who might not? Right. The subject of privilege is often really misunderstood. And I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there these days. Um, for me, I just realized, I, I've always taken the biblical phrase that I'm blessed to be a blessing. Privilege, I mean, I have been given many things. Um, I've had a stable home. Um, I've never economically lacked anything. Um, I had parents who modeled, I think, uh, good lives. Uh, look behind me, you see the books there. I had books around me. I, I learned to read and, and be, began learning. Um, I had role models. Uh, I, I had all of these things. That's what privilege is. I'm also a man. I'm also white. And I realized that that gives me a leg up on folks who don't have those privileges. I like to couch it in terms of blessings. I, I have been blessed. And, and so I like to think of paying it forward. If, I've, if my bucket has been filled, and, and it's frankly filled to overflowing, um, let's get, let me get out there and share with others, but, but equally important to change the systems that keep people in place. It's not just about Dave doing something and helping others. It's about changing the systems. And this is where systemic racism comes in, that, that I think a lot of people don't realize because they, they haven't really encountered the struggles of other people, people who are poor, people are, who are immigrants, people who are um, deprived of good health, I mean, handicapped people, we need to find ways to develop laws, systems, 
um, governmental practices that level the playing field. Because right now, the playing field ain't level. And if anybody says it is, then I challenge them to call me on the phone, stop by, and tell me how I'm wrong. Because the playing field is not level. And, and we, we need to do our best to, to level that playing field and to give everybody an opportunity to experience what our Constitution talks about in terms of the fruits of our, of our freedom, right? Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well said. Um, on that front, Holden Village, this is a place remote in the Washington, northern Washington um, area where people literally live with equal opportunities um, and sharing of resources. Can you tell me about outdoors education, your philosophy, and Holden Village as a place that you take students? <laughs> Well, first of all, um, Holden Village uh, was a place I went when I was in high school. Uh, this retreat center up in the mountains, the Cascade Mountains of Washington, um, was given to what was then the Lutheran Bible Institute, which became Trinity Lutheran College, where I, where I taught, and we got to know each other. Um, and then eventually it, it developed a, a leadership and a, and a, and a retreat style of ministry. I would call it a lifestyle ministry where, where these values that I've been talking about are woven into daily life. And so it's a small community in the mountains um, who try to practice ecological justice, racial justice. All of these things that we talk about, they've, they've striven to achieve them. And I think they would be honest and humble enough to say it's hard. <laughs> and, and they have failed in their own kinds of ways. But I went there as a, as a young person and I've been taking groups there for many years. We had a, an event called Let Justice Roll, a youth event. Um, every fall, we had the Holden Youth Weekends. And it was always an opportunity to get away, to unplug and to be out of doors and to learn and to experience a simpler, um, uh, more just lifestyle. And so Holden is a wonderful place, which I commend. If people haven't been there, go. If, if, uh, if they have, <laughs> I know you'll go back. In some sense, both our relationships were solidified at Holden Village while we were out on a walk. That's in right. great outdoors. <laughs> Recently, I saw a show on Netflix titled Abstract with a particular episode that was heavily emphasized on outdoors education for children, but less so on the academic side and more on the play side. I think sometimes early learning has focused too much on academics. And I think the way that children learn best and uh, adults renew their spirits <laughs> is by playing, by not necessarily competing and having to win, but just going out and enjoying the outdoors. Um, I have done it for years, whether it's um, my running for many years or to this day I go walking 
after our conversation today, I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to ride my bike for a couple of hours. Tomorrow's my paddling day. So my kayak will be on the water. But I guarantee you, if you go outside and go for a walk, like my grandfather used to do, everything is better. You settle down, you calm down, you breathe some fresh air. And so I think the outdoors not only are the great classroom where we can learn about the environment and ourselves, I say the outdoors are the great cathedral. That, that the spirit is at work in the outdoors. And if we're open to that spirit, our spirits are renewed. And like in Genesis, the, the spirit of God blew upon the waters and blew into humans and, and the breath of life came and, and, and life itself began to flourish. And I think that's what we all need is to get outside and play. Hey, listener, if you don't already know, I'd like to take this opportunity to get you up to speed. In the next few weeks, Dave is going to be launching a new podcast series titled Straight from the Heart. Stay tuned, subscribe, so you're up to date when that comes out. Back to the episode. Well, my, my good friend and mentor in all things outdoor learning-wise, particularly early learning with, with young children, is, as you say, Sue Hoagland. And I, I commend listeners to a podcast I did with her that's in the archives about outdoor learning. I did with her maybe a month ago. But um, as Sue and I would both agree that we learn best outdoors, we learn best by playing but Trinity Lutheran College um, was an, an urban campus. You know, we were in the middle of the, the city, small city, but an urban area called Everett, Washington. And she and I, our offices were right down the hall from each other. We'd look out across a cityscape with cement and buildings. And, but the college owned a parking garage across the street from our windows, gray cement. Well, she and I had a dream that we would turn gray into green. And we had to do a lot of schmoozing and grant writing and, and um, arm twisting. But eventually, we helped to create the rooftop garden where we were growing vegetables. Um, the Acorn Learning Center, which was an outdoor learning program for children. And uh, I look back over the many things that I've been involved in over the years, and that is one of the highlights of being able to create a space. And the best part was each day when I would drive my electric car <laughs> from Edmonds to Everett and park it in the parking garage, down below the rooftop garden. I would walk up through the rooftop garden before I'd head to classes, and I began to hear these little voices, Mr. Dave, Mr. Dave. And that got my day going because here were these wonderful children playing outside, rain or shine, and just learning, being little scientists, you know, ex doing, you know, experiments with dirt and 
rocks and sand and mud and puddles. And um, those were some of the happiest days of my life. And this is very relevant today with the pandemic. Um, and Sue talks about this in, in her podcast with me. This, one of the safest places to be these days is outdoors. And so early learning programs um, have an opportunity and schools, insofar as they're able, if they can hold classes or have learning experiences, do field trips, to be outdoors, it's an opportunity. It's a struggle, right? We don't want to be inside anymore when we have to. But let's use this as an opportunity to get outside and play and to learn. And I think it's a, a great opportunity to see how valuable the outdoors uh, can be for learning. Wonderful. And uh, I want to move on on the outdoors conversation uh, and talk a little bit about Trinity Lutheran College, Lutheran Bible Institute, and your professorship at that institution. What were some of the values, the lessons learned, uh, and the key takeaways um, from that experience for you? Oh, goodness. Um, well, teaching at Trinity was a wonderful experience. I had terrific colleagues. Um, we, we got along well. We were a small school, so that's one of the ways that we got to know our students very well. I mean, Bello, you and I worked on a lot of projects together. You helped me on the rooftop garden. We wrote grants together. It was not a big university or a college where you don't have as much student contact. So we, we were like a village. Right. And, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a faith village to grow the faith. It takes a village like Trinity to really impact uh, the lives of the students in significant ways. So that would be one thing. Great colleagues, small size. The other part in the tradition was that it was originally the Lutheran Bible Institute. And um, for me, obviously, the Bible is an important book. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not a, a book. It's many books, right? As you well know, you had to take classes on those. <laughs> and um, I, I think the problem with the Bible these days, and it's always probably been true, is people don't really read it, or they, they let it sit on the shelf, um, or they pick passages that support their particular bias, or they misinterpret what the Bible is by projecting their values in, into the Bible or into the sayings of Jesus or the Old Testament prophets. And so our college really worked hard to, <laughs> to open the book <laughs> and to read it and to study and to try to figure out not only what did it mean 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but what does it mean? How do we apply it to today? And, you know, I, I think back to, I was talking about my mentors, Henry Nowen, again, was one of my mentors at Yale, and he would come to lead student retreats with my students in Southern California, and he knew I was an activist, and he was an activist, too. And I remember just sitting with him one day, and this was wisdom I've never forgotten. He said, you know, if you're going to continue to be an activist into your 
50s, 60s, 70s, here I am, right? Um, you need to sink your roots deep into a life of prayer and a life of scriptural reading, right? Now, I would never claim to be a great prayer or a great Bible student, but insofar as I have prayed and I've become more prayerful in my dotage, uh, but also, you know, as I read the scripture, read the Bible, or I had to teach a class, my goodness, then I had to really study, right? Um, I found that it is the book of life. It's not an ancient manuscript. It's the book of life. And I would encourage, you know, listeners who, who maybe haven't opened their Bibles, and they probably have a bunch, you know, um, open them up. Open up uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Hosea in the Old Testament, Amos. You know, here, we're, you know, it's, it's relevant stuff because the rulers of that time, <laughs> whether they be religious or uh, governmental secular, uh, were screwing up. And um, so they spoke truth to power. But they reminded people that at the heart of being a good person, a righteous person, was uh, caring for the widow and the orphan. Those were code words for the unfortunate, the people who didn't have any power. And that's still true today. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the person who is poor. We need to measure our success as people of faith, but just as a nation, in terms of how we're caring for those people, not our gross national product, not our stock portfolios, not all of those things that are not unimportant, but are not eternal and essential. And so teaching at Trinity forced me to read the Bible more, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And when I did, the Spirit, I think, continued to stir in me and, and remind me of what's really important. So I encourage people to, to crack open, dust off their Bible, crack it open, and take a fresh look. Speaking of cracking open the Bible and learning the lessons of caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, many people may not know this, but during your time at Trinity, you were a key influencer in bringing about a group of students from Tacoma and Seattle, Washington onto campus through this program or initiative called Act 6. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? for you to have to advocate and apply the lessons from the Bible to your work environment? Well, you know, you, you asked earlier about privilege. Um, my privilege extends back to my grandparents going to college and my parents going to college. And so it was a foregone conclusion that I was gonna go to college, whether I wanted to or not, right? And I'm glad I did. But for many people, that's not the privilege or the experience that they've had. And the, the two programs that in particular I was blessed to work with uh, while at Trinity, one was called the College Success Foundation, which was started actually by the Gates Foundation um, and helped 
students who would be the first in their families who had promise in terms of education and learning to go to college. And it began working with those students when they were in high school to help them learn how to, to write their personal essay or their resume or their applications or fill out the FAFSA forms. And, um, you know, that was a wonderful introduction. So I had heard about it and I helped to bring that program to Trinity. Then there was another program, which you were a part of called Act Six, that had many of those same goals of helping bright students who were the first in their families to go to college to navigate through the process, which when you are privileged, <laughs> like me, it's like, oh yeah, ask mom and dad, they'll help you do that. But when you don't have that experience, it just is daunting. Plus, how am I gonna to afford to do this? So Act 6 and College Success provided scholarships and training. And then here's the best part. And I'll tell the story about when you came into my office. You and Misael, a Latino, um, Darwin from Guam, and uh, Christian, an African-American student from Tacoma. You came into my office and were complaining about how you were not feeling as supported as you uh, needed to be. And I, I, I was empathetic, but I said, so what are you going to do about it? And you guys looked at me like, you know, we can do something. And so I sort of, you, you guys left and came back a couple of weeks later with a plan. And it was called the HOPE Initiative, Help Our People Excel. And it was a curriculum, not unlike College Success and the Act 6 program. And you guys, the difference was, you guys were going to be the mentors, you guys and gals, because there were women students, the Act 6 students, you were going to be mentors for local high school kids who were the first in their family, oftentimes students of color, to navigate those confusing and challenging waters so that they could consider um, going on into higher education and becoming leaders in their communities. And so I'm just, I was delighted to be a part of that, but it was really to your credit that you all created that and that program continues to this day. Wow. That's quite, uh, <laughs> that's quite a life. Uh, I want to go back and touch base again on the outdoors education front, uh, but more particularly on this subject of uh, pilgrimage. I remember as a student at Trinity, I came into your office once and you weren't there. And Mark Jackson poked his head out from the neighboring <laughs> office and I said, are you looking for that guy? I said, yes. And he says, well, he's on a pilgrimage. And at that point in time, I was befuddled. I didn't know exactly what that meant. Can you tell us a little bit about your take on pilgrimage and your method of pilgrimage? <laughs> well, the, the pilgrimage I was on at that time was a pilgrimage in my kayak 
from Lake Itasca at the headwaters of the Mississippi River uh, for two months, 2,350 miles down to New Orleans in Louisiana. Now, it's a pilgrimage. That's a long journey. <laughs> it was a difficult journey. Uh, but I learned so much on that pilgrimage. I mean, the, the word pilgrimage is, is uh, common to many of the great religions, if you will. I mean, if you, you have a background in your own family in the Muslim faith, and, and, and you would make a pilgrimage at least once in your lifetime to where? Mecca, right? And, and the idea was that on the journey, you would pray, you would reflect, you'd think about your life, and you'd recommit yourself to that life that uh, Muhammad or that Jesus or whoever, Buddha, um, called you to. I love to kayak. I love to be out of doors, you know that. And so I, I didn't really, I, I, it was a Huck Finn a boyhood adventure in many ways, just to get in my boat and head down the river. But it became a pilgrimage. And for me, what pilgrimage came to mean was a journey with God. Ooh. In other words, how is God, how are the important things of life resurfacing as I'm paddling along, right? Um, and, and one of the ways uh, that I write about in my Paddle Pilgrim books, and there are now three books, one on Mississippi, one on Erie Canal, one on the fjords of Norway. Um, one of the ways was what, through I, what I called uh, river angels, right? And, and it, the people you meet on a pilgrimage or on a journey these are people who help you out. They, they say, you can camp on my land. You can, would you like to take a shower? Uh, I've got some food here. Can I take you to town to get supplies? I kept meeting people along on the journey. And um, no, you could just say, well, those are nice people. Well, they are indeed. But I, I came to realize that the word angel, which is a Greek, uh, English word from the Greek, angelos. The word literally means messenger, right? We think of angels as these little Renaissance, fat little cherubic figures with wings that could never fly and, and, and something kind of alien almost. But literally, I experienced, and I think in life, an angel is a messenger, and that's when I do presentations and talk about this, I then point at the, all the people in the audience. And I say, we all can be angels. We can all be messengers. And so maybe the, one of the best lessons I learned on pilgrimage is that God uses all sorts of people, uses me, uses you to help other people. That's that great commandment that Jesus talked about, right? Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Be a, a river angel, a canal angel, a fjord angel, a neighborhood angel, uh, an angel now in the coming weeks with the election coming up to help people get to the polls. You know, Be the hands and feet of God. Now that sounds very churchy, but I hope, I hope listeners find that, that maybe that kind of way of describing it from my experience will resonate with them. 
Adventurer. That is a recent title that you've taken while exploring pilgrimage. And now I hear you had planned an adventure to Southeast Asia. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, you didn't go as scheduled. <laughs> but can you tell me a little bit more about the Southeast Asia trip and any future adventures that you're considering? Well, when the pandemic um, is hopefully uh, not over, but more under control, uh, several friends and I will launch our kayaks in uh, Southeast Asia on the Mekong River uh, in the country of Laos. People often pronounce it Laos, but it's Laos. And we'll launch our kayaks in Laos and paddle through Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam to the ocean. And our plan will be to paddle for at least a month to camp and stay with people as often as possible, river angels <laughs> along the way, to learn as we go about a different culture. Part of what's drawn me to this part of the world is it's a very different world and different culture. And I wanna, I wanna experience and understand this part of the world better. Uh, one of the people in my paddling crew that I invited was actually a former student who is a Vietnamese American. And Tom, who's actually now a Lutheran pastor, Tom um, was a product of the Vietnam War. His father met a Vietnamese gal and they had a child, uh, not planned or intended, and Tom became an orphan and lived in an orphanage until he was nine. And he was adopted by an American family in Minnesota, came to the US, went to school, came to a workshop that I led on video production. I got to know Tom years ago when he was 15 years old. And then he went to college, went to seminary. He's now a Lutheran pastor. And so when I thought of this journey down the Mekong, I immediately thought of, of Tom Glasso. So I called him and said, Tom, you want to paddle the Mekong? And the words were hardly out of my mouth. And he said, absolutely. So he and several other folks and I will be paddling. We're actually going to do this as a benefit uh, for a variety of causes, one of them being the orphanage um, that Tom grew up in. And so that adventure is on hold um, until the pandemic is at least uh, manageable. But uh, at some point, I hope in the next year, um, we will launch and uh, paddle the Mekong River. You know, the spirit of adventure, even in the midst of a pandemic, never goes away. I remember talking to you online about what you're going to do after the cancellation of the Mekong adventure. And you said, well, hmm, how about something digital? How about something? <laughs> That's where the podcast was born. That is where the podcast was born. <laughs> and, and you have been such a, a good partner and helper in this. So thank you, continued uh, 
praise for your digital uh, skills as well as just your ability to help me to make sense of this sort of alien world of podcasting and electronic media. Well, here we are in the midst of a pandemic and you've embarked on this adventure, explored so many people's life journeys, and now we're exploring yours. I wanna know, what are some of the lessons, key lessons you learned in this particular adventure? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, let me just do a plug for all those life journey episodes because the people sharing their journeys um, are the best voices to listen to. I just was able to go along on the journey and learn from them, but listening to Rick Steves talk about travel in the world, listening to, as I said, Sue Hoagland talk about outdoor learning, listen to um, poet Christian Page, uh, sharing his poetry, uh, listening to musicians like uh, Rachel Kurtz and have her sing. Oh my goodness. I, I, I sort of did a, a list of people I just wanted to get to know better. And, and you're one of them. So you're, the podcast with you was great fun. And um, so I think what I learned, if, there, if I were to summarize it in just a few words, I learned that each of us is on a journey and each of our journeys are unique and I would call holy. That we travel on holy ground, we travel through holy waters. And I like to maybe think of the phrase favorite poet Mary Oliver um, uses in one of her poems, Springtime. She says, instructions for living, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And so my podcast has been a chance to, to, to listen to the journeys of remarkable people. And I think all people, all people, imago dei are made in the image of God. All of them are special, unique, holy, blessed, and we should treat each other with that kind of respect and love because that's how we were created and that's what we're meant to live like. And so I'm just reminded about how remarkable all of these people were that I, that I had conversations with. And so when I go back out on the street or when I go for my bike ride, as I look at people passing me along the trail, or as I see people in a store, I remind myself, child of God, blessed, listen, pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. And there you have it, folks, the life journey of Reverend Dave Ellingson, a professor who has gone beyond the call of duty to educate, mentor, and support his students. Remember to stay tuned and subscribe for the next season, Straight from the Heart. Thank you, Dave. Blessings to you. Have a good rest of the day, Bello. Adios.